had a good week at class. I missed being here last Sunday, but um, I heard it was a real blessing to the church. Appreciate Michael for preaching the word, um, being faithful to the word in his preaching. Appreciate that. My only concern was when I came back in this week, I came in and I thought, I think I'm in the wrong place. And uh, every, everything was changed around and it looked different and uh, I realized I was in the right place. But our, our um, first impressions team did a great job, didn't they? And appreciate them for the vision for this and then putting it together and um, just appreciate their work in this and I hope and pray that you can get used to it a little bit and then once you're used to it, we'll make sure that it changes again. So we keep you out of your comfort zone. So, um, you know, take, your, take the tape off the back of the seat that you had before and put it on your new seat, and uh, you'll know where you're supposed to be sitting, right? Every good church member has their seat that they like to be seated in. But it is good to be in the Lord's house today, and uh, thankful for all of you being here um, especially you visitors that are here with us this morning, we want to welcome you. We trust that you feel welcomed by the friendliness of our congregation before the services take place. And then we pray that you feel blessed by the music that has already happened. And then we also desire for you to learn and to grow in God's word. And so James chapter number four will be our primary text this morning. And um, I'm going to actually read from chapter 3 and verse 13 down to chapter 4 and verse 10, and then we'll pray and and get into the sermon. The Bible says, Who is wise and and, and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambitions exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to uh, reason or, or easily entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and peaceable, um, impartial and sincere, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I want to just give you that background. That's not where we'll be this morning, but I wanted you to see that, that really that comparison between uh, heavenly wisdom, divine wisdom, wisdom that comes from above, um, that is pure and peaceable and um, easily uh, challenged or entreated, um, open to, to conversation, um, always merciful and, and, and full of good fruits versus the worldly wisdom, the wisdom that is from the world that is, uh, the Lord calls it earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And the word demonic there is, is it's, it's a, the, the, the scriptures, the author is, is making a, a strong claim to the seriousness of the wisdom that comes from the world. It's no small thing, the world's wisdom. And the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 1 that the Lord, that the gospel is, is going to destroy the wisdom of this world. It's going to annihilate the wisdom of this world. 
And so we see this comparison in these, four, in these verses at the end of chapter 3 of earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And then chapter number 4, it, it really it tells us what they both look like. It gives us a description of, of heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom, and it really is a challenge. The first 10 verses of chapter number 4 are, are a challenge to us to choose heavenly wisdom. If, if, I, if I was... defining or describing the theme of these 10 verses, it is choose the right path. Choose the right direction. Choose the path that is a path of heavenly wisdom, divine wisdom, and don't choose the path of earthly wisdom or carnal wisdom. Chapter 4 and verse number 1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. And this is a strong, a strong word there. I don't want to pass by that. This, this term is simply, it's not describing somebody going out on their wife or going out on their husband. It's describing somebody going out on the Lord. Uh, the Bible refers to our relationship with the Lord in such a way as it is a marital relationship. And uh, we are in a relationship with him that is an intimate relationship. And when we choose the path of this world, we are being adulterous. When we choose the wisdom of this world, we are, we are being intimate with somebody who is not our, our bride or our husband in a spiritual way. And so it's, again, it's a very serious thing. He calls it demonic in the verses before. Here he calls it adulterous, like having an extramarital relationship because you have gone out on the Lord. And um, anytime we choose the world over the Lord, it's like having an extramarital relationship. It's a very, very serious thing. It's not something to take lightly. He goes on to say, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever you suppose is to, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, of, it is to no purpose that the scripture says? He yearns jealousy over the spirit that, is, that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word. We know that it is alive. We believe that it is active, that it is capable of penetrating into the, to the deepest and darkest areas. It is capable of softening a rock-hard heart. It is capable of humbling a rebellious and prideful heart. Your word is powerful, and we depend upon it this morning. We pray that your spirit will open up our hearts and our minds to receiving it. Please give clarity. Please give boldness this morning. And um, 
please give understanding as well. We submit, Lord God, to your will. What you wish to accomplish, we desire for it to be accomplished, and we'll give you the praise and the glory for it. In Christ's name, amen. I want to start off with a little uh, story, a little antidote, if you will, to um, give us kind of a, an overview or a picture of what we're dealing with here in this passage of Scripture about choosing the right path. Um, the the, the um, title of the sermon is Decisions and Directions, and the reason I entitled that is because we all make decisions, and those decisions often lead to a direction. It's, it's one decision that sets us on a path that ultimately we begin to go down that path, and one day we realize that we made this decision at this point in time in our life, and now we're here, and we look back, and that's kind of the decision that set us on that path. We were, um, my family and I, we moved to Nebraska in 2006, and I started a ministry in Central City, Nebraska, and within about weeks of being there, we were informed of a horrific accident that had happened at the local evangelical free church. Um, Their youth group had gone on a skiing trip, and a few of the boys, four of the boys to be exact, had, had had gone up on the ski uh, lift and had gone to the top, the, the highest peak that they could find. They were very, very skilled in their ability to navigate the terrain, and they were very, very good snowboarders, not skiers, but snowboarders. And they made their way to the very top of the mountain, and they got all the way up there, and they could look, and you could kind of imagine or picture in your mind, they can kind of see this, these beautiful views, and they began to, they began to think about and consider which hill do we go down? Which path do we go down? You know, maybe over here it's a black, it's a marked a black path, and over here it's blue, and probably not going to have any greens up there. For any of you skiers that know what it's like to go up to the top, you're not going to have any greens, but maybe some blues and some blacks and some, what other, what other terms there are, diamond, black, di- I don't know what it's all is, but there's a lot of dangerous stuff going on. So they're up on the top of this, on top of the mountain, in Colorado, in Loveland, Colorado, and they're considering what path to go down. Four boys, all in high school. Um, the youngest, I think, was 14. And um, all great, all great snowboarders, and they noticed a path that had been blocked off. And there was some ropes there, and there were signs there. This path is not to be skied down. It's too dangerous. It's too difficult. It's, 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 it, there's possibility of... Of, of a great risk here. And so if you're like any other teenage boy, that's the path that you notice the most, right? That's the path that you want to go down. You, if you feel really confident in your skill set, that's probably the path you're going to choose, even though there's a lot of signs that tell you that that's not the right path, that's the path that you want to go down. And sure enough, these four boys decide, you know what, that's the path we're going to go down. So they began to, to, to uh, snowboard down that path. They were enjoying the fresh snow. No one had touched the snow. It was just fresh powder, and they were just snowboarding down, and it was just a great adventure. After they had come to the foot of the mountain, they, they arrived there, and obviously when you're going down the hill, going down at different speeds and taking different uh, areas, they're, they're kind of split up. So they, they slowly start to arrive at the bottom, and one shows up, and then two shows up, and then three show up, and then they wait there for a while for the fourth boy to come down to the foot of the mountain so they can get together and talk about their, their trip down, but he doesn't, she doesn't arrive for, for some time. 
And the other three boys begin to get concerned and begin to be frantic about what has happened to their, to their friend. And so they begin to search. They begin to make their way back up the mountain the best that they possibly could. Obviously, it was very difficult to do, ultimately to no avail. They called in the, um, they called in the rescue, the search teams. They came out and they searched. And I believe it was the next day that they actually found this young boy's body. And he had, he had fallen into what's called soft snow. If you're familiar with snow, it's kind of like sink, it's like snow that acts in a way like sinking sand. And once you get into it, if you, um, if you struggle or you wrestle with it, you just begin to sink further and further into the snow. And so this boy had suffocated in the snow, and he was 14 years old. He was the youngest of all the, all the boys, and uh, he, 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 his, life was, his life was gone. I remember going to the funeral and being there with really just thousands and thousands of high school and uh, junior high kids and, and just the, the heaviness of that moment. When we think about moments like this, we think about a decision that was made at the top of that hill, that they stood there, they didn't consider, they, di- they didn't know what the future held. They didn't know what was going to take place 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes after that. They didn't know any of those things. They stood at the top of that hill and they began to evaluate what direction should we go. And they thought about their abilities. And they thought about, hey, we're pretty good at this. We're pretty talented. We're pretty capable of going down these more difficult hills. You know, maybe a black diamond isn't enough for us because we're really good at this stuff. We've got it all figured out. We've got this thing under control. Then they begin to consider what's probably the most challenging What's going to be the most exhilarating adventure for us? And they begin to determine, they begin to make their decision, they begin to weigh the, the, the decision that they're going to make, what path they're going to go down by this certain criteria, by this certain list of things that they're going through. And what you'll not find in a, in a decision-making process that these boys went through was, what's the right thing to do? That's not on their list. It's not there. It's not on their list. What's the right thing to do? Because they would have never considered the hill that was completely marked off as dangerous and no one, no, you know, no passing or whatever the word might be. They would have never considered that if at the top of their list would be what's the right thing to do? What's the mature thing to do? What's the healthy thing to do? No, on, the, on their list was what's the most exciting thing to do? What's the most adventurous thing to do? What's the most dangerous thing to do? And, and, and honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, as human beings, we might even have on that list, what's the most rebellious thing to do? What, what can I do that's going to cause the most impact? These boys stood at the pinnacle of the mountain, and they had a decision to make which path do we go down? And they ultimately chose the wrong path. They ultimately chose the dangerous path. They ultimately chose the path that would lead to one of them losing their life. Like these boys, many of us stand at the pinnacle of the mountain called life. We stand there at the pinnacle, we're at the top, and we're looking down and we're determining, we're deciding, which path do I go down? Which direction do I go? Where do, what do I choose? 
Do I choose based upon what's exciting and adventurous, what's going to challenge my abilities, what's going to be fun, what's going to make me happy? Or do we decide based upon what is right? Do we decide based upon what the Lord desires for us to do? Is that the guide that motivates us and encourages us? In chapter four of James, in the 10 verses, you have it broken down. It's structured in such a way that you have on the front side of it, you have like you're climbing up a mountain, and then the back side of it is the, 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 the slope back down the mountain. You can almost picture in your mind that these 10 verses are structured in that you're standing on the top. You're at the very top of the hill, and you're looking down, and you have two paths to choose. You can go down this path, or you can go down this path. You can choose this way or you can choose this way. And all of the signs are mentioned in this text. All of the results and the ways and and, and those are all mentioned here. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today and I have set before you life and death Blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that you and your offsprings may live. And then you're familiar with Matthew chapter number seven, where the Bible says that there are two ways. One is a broad way, one is a a broad way, it is an easy way, it is a selfish way, it is a sinful way, and that way leads to destruction. The other, the Bible says, is a narrow way. It's a constrained way. It's a difficult way. And the Bible teaches us that that way leads to life. And he says for us to choose that way. He literally says in Matthew 7, not only to choose that way, but he says to to strive to be on that path. The picture used in the terms there is to, is to, to labor to be on that path to strive to be on the right path because it is the most important path. We need to understand that there is a call today for us to choose the right way, to choose the right path. So let's start in our text here. Let's unfold it this morning, unpack a little bit of what we have here. So we're gonna start at the peak. Again, the way that this text is structured is if you want to know the theme of the text, you just have to look in the middle of it. So verses 5 and 6 are actually the theme of the text. So we're going to look at verses 5 and 6, and then we're going to basically ski down both sides of the mountain. We're going to ski down both paths, and we're going to see what they result in. It's, it's a beautiful, really, it's a, it's, a, it's a way in which God actually shows us what these paths look like. For the most part, we, we can't see it, Right? You make a decision and then you go down that road and then you face all the consequences of that path. What the Lord is doing here in these 10 verses is he's actually showing us what these paths look like. Path A, if you will, and path B. What do they look like? So here here is the theme. Verse 5 and 6 say this. Do you suppose it is of no purpose that the Spirit says... He yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What he he proposes in these two verses as the theme of this text is that there is a conflict. 
There is a war that's going on in the heart and mind of every individual that makes decisions. Every day, the decisions that you make, there's a war over those decisions. And that war is what's motivating you to make the decisions that you're making. It's what is your guide, what is your director that is motivating you to do the things that you do? This is a conflict that's taking place within, inside of us. The Bible says in this verse of Scripture that, the, 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 um, that God, he, at the middle of verse number five, he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. In other words, there's a conflict between God and the human spirit. There is a war that's going on between God and the human spirit, and that war is to motivate us to do the right thing, it is to motivate us to go down the right path. It is to motivate us to follow the way of the Lord. Galatians 5, 17, the Bible describes it this way, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The desires of the spirit, which is the spiritual side of us, which I would call in this text God, the desires of God are at opposition. They are opposed to the desires of man. There is a war. It doesn't mean that these are friendly towards each other. They're not compatible. The Bible says that the desires of the, of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are opposed to or against the flesh. There is a war that's going on in the life of every individual. And it is a war to, to own you. It, it is a war to control you. It is a war to guide you. And your flesh wants you to do what your flesh wants you to do. So when you come across a decision, your, your flesh is going to lay out a number of different reasons why you should follow it. Right? It feels good. It's challenging. It, it's, it's going to be exciting and exhilarating. It's going to get your heart rate up. All of these things your flesh is laying out for you on every decision that you make. On, on this side, the Spirit of God or God himself is laying out all of the reasons why you should not follow your flesh, but you should follow your spirit. You should follow that which is right. That's at the top of its list. Is it the right thing to do? Is it going to help other people? Is it going to be the humble way of doing things? Is it going to be kind and gracious and merciful? That's the list that the Spirit gives you. It's not exciting. It's not going to motivate your flesh. It's not going to drive you to, to having this fleshly experience. That's over here. That's what the Lord says is at war with what is right. There is a war going on inside of every single individual, and it's between the flesh and it's between the spirit. It's, it's, it's the opposition of the two. The Bible says in, I want to look at uh, um, Romans 8 if you want to turn there for just a moment. Romans 8. It's like being on a diet. I wrote this little note down. It's like being on a diet, isn't it? Have anybody ever been on a diet before? I mean, probably all of us in here has, or a lot of us in here have been on a diet, right? Is it not true that there's a war that goes on when you're on a diet? 
Has anybody ever felt that? Has anybody ever been to a party on a diet? I mean, it's like horrible. It's like you're sitting there and you're looking at the cupcakes and you're looking at all the fine foods that have been placed before you and you're just like, I really, 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 really want to eat that right now. Right? I mean, it is strong. It is powerful. It is motivating, right? I mean, it is giving you, it's crazy. It's giving you like this whole list of reasons why you should eat it. Your flesh is doing that. And you're inside and you're thinking to yourself, I can't eat that. Why? Because your diet is telling you, I want to I lose weight. I, I don't want to give up on what I, have, what I have accomplished so far. And you literally, you have at that very moment, you have two things going on inside of you. You have this side giving you a list of reasons. We'll call it the diet side. It's giving you all of the reasons why you should not eat the cake. Right? And this side over here is giving you all of the reasons why you should eat the cake. And if you're like me, this side wins out more times than this side does, right? And you know what's interesting? I've been on a lot of diets in my life, so I know this by experience. What's interesting is that I often give in to this side, right? And I feel miserable later. Anybody ever been there before? When you give in to this side on a diet, we're just talking about diets here, on this side, if you give in to this side, do you know how you feel later? Anybody know how you feel later when you've done the right thing? You feel great, don't you? Isn't it so amazing? The flesh is so powerful to get you to do what you should not do. And in the end, it leaves you miserable. The spirit gets you to do what you should do, and in the end, you feel powerful. Listen to what he says in Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Again, this is a very strong word. It means it is the enemy. The mind that is fleshly is at war with God. And he says, um, and, it, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, those who are submitted to the flesh, those who are following the flesh over here, listen to what the Bible says. This is not my words, this is God's words. Those who are controlled by the flesh cannot please God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 and verse 6 that unless a man lives by faith, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so I'm going to actually turn there because I don't want to paraphrase too badly. It's one of those, one of those senior moments, right? Hebrews 11 and verse 6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if you are living, if you are living this morning and you're making your decisions based upon all of these lists over here that are your, how does it feel? How exciting will it be? How will it, all of these things, if you're in that world, you are not pleasing to God. You may be satisfying yourself, but you are not pleasing to God. On the other side of it, also in Romans chapter number 8 and verse 14, the Bible says this, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body or the flesh, you will live. For all of those who are led, this word led means controlled, dominated, all those who are controlled by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
Or another way of saying that would be, these are the children of God. So the conflict within us is a conflict between flesh and spirit. This conflict is, um, I'm going to go back to James. The conflict is, is twofold. I want you to get this, okay? So there's, there's, there's debate over theologians about whether this is talking to saved people or lost people. So I wanted you to look at it from this perspective. A saved person has a conflict within them. Their conflict is between their flesh, which is their outer being, their, their, the part of them that has not yet been transformed in the image of Christ, and the spirit of God that lives inside of them. That's where your war is. Your war is the inside of you wants to do the right thing, but the outside of you doesn't want to do the right thing. Your flesh wants to do He wants to eat the cupcake, right? On the other end, for an unsaved person, if you're unsaved, your conflict is external. That means that you you want to do the wrong thing on the inside. That's what you desire to do. You want to do the wrong thing. And there's an external hindrance that is the Holy Spirit. He's not inside of you, but he still hinders you. There's still a convicting power of the Holy Spirit that brings hindrance. So, So there's twofold to this. There's a war for a believer between his internal Spirit, spiritual man and his external fleshly man. And then there's a war be- for a, a, an unbeliever between his internal carnal man and his external and externally God. He's at war with God. God is at war with him. Okay? In our text, back to our text, just a few things real quick in verses five and six. Okay? He says... Um, do you suppose it is, it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Just a few things. Number one, the flesh is marked by pride. Just note that. The flesh is marked by pride. It means the, the carnal man, the natural man, it is marked, it is identified by, by pride. That's really what kind of what guides it. And those, you look, think about those, those four boys, what guided them ultimately was their ability, what would exhilarate them, what would be exciting for them. And in the end, it was their pride. The, the flesh is always marked by pride and it leads to, it always leads to opposition. The flesh always leads to opposition. It says that God opposes the proud. On the other hand, the spirit is always marked by humility. It's always marked by humility and it always leads to grace. Grace is what we would call unmerited favor or, or, or supernatural strength. Humility always leads to unmerited favor and supernatural strength. I love the way that he phrases it. He says, he gives more grace. This means that God is always, on those who are humble, on those who are acting in in obedience to the Spirit of God, the Bible says that he's going to abundantly and continually bestow upon them grace. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to know that God's grace never runs out for those who walk in humility? I believe this with all my heart. I believe that there's not a single person in here that is sinless. Can I get an amen? Amen. Good. I think that was like everybody, so I'm good with that. There's not a single person in here that is sinless. Now, I I would say this to you. There are people in here that respond to their sins in pride, and there are people in here that respond to their sins in humility. The, the, The core is the same. We're all sinners, right? 
If you respond to your sin, your failures and your faults with pride, what is it going to lead to? Opposition with God. If you respond to your fallenness in pride, you then become the enemy of God. If you respond to your fallenness with humility, you then receive what? More grace. And then more grace. And then more, that's, that's the idea of the phrase here is you, you, it is this abundantly bestowed upon you. It's just responding with humility results in an, an abundance, an overwhelming amount of grace. But responding in pride results to an overwhelming amount of conflict, war. So that's the basis. We choose the way of of the world, worldly wisdom, marked by pride, or we choose the way of heavenly wisdom, marked by humility. Okay? If you're taking notes, that is called the conflict. That's point one, the conflict. Number two is going to be sliding down the mountain on both sides. All we're going to do is make some comparisons here. This is the reason why it's structured the way that it is. It is structured to give us kind of a stepping down. I'm going to step off the mountain down this way, flesh. Step down the mountain this way, spirit. And while I'm doing it, you're going to have comparisons being made in every verse along the way. Okay? So we're just going to step down together And we're going to see this unfold for us. Watch what he says in verse number four. Here's the way of the flesh. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then verse seven says... Therefore, verse 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the first comparison that you have as you journey down this hill on both sides is the comparison of the way of submission and resistance versus the way of friendship with the world. This is the comparison. On one end of the spectrum, the flesh is always going to be pursuing friendship with the world. Uh, when you think about friendship with the world, there are a few things that come to our, to our mind. It is the pursuit of the world's acceptance. It's the pursuit of the world liking us or being popular or being successful or having riches or being considered as intellectual or smart. It's the, it's the pursuit of all of these things are the way of the world or the way of the flesh, The flesh is driven by things that it can see and feel and touch, right? Okay, that's what the flesh is driven by. Uh, 1 John tells us that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This This is the way of the world. And you'll notice that it is the pursuit of friendship with the world. It's not the accomplishment of friendship with the world, but it is the pursuit of friendship with the world. I am pursuing friendship with the world. On the other end of the spectrum, we have submission and resistance. Submission is obedience. It is being subordinate. On the spiritual side, I am pursuing the world's acceptance. I'm pursuing their friendship. On this side, I am simply submitting to God. I am submitting to his will. I am submitting to his way. I am submitting to his desires. I'm submitting to him in every way possible. 
Again, I am putting myself under his authority. I'm making myself secondary. I'm no longer primary, but now I'm secondary. Because why? Because God is primary. I am submitting myself to his authority. I am submitting myself to his will. I am submitting myself to his way. The greatest example of this is found in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, where Jesus Christ humbled himself extraordinarily, taking upon himself the form of a man, not just any man, but the lowliest of the lowest men, being found in fashion as a servant, and then hanging on a tree naked for your sins and for my sins. That is the ultimate shame. It is the ultimate shame, isn't it? This is the path that God is calling us to choose. This is the road that he is, or the hill that he is telling us to go down. No, it's not full of self-fame or feel-good Christianity. It's full of humility and submission to whatever God chooses for you or whatever God chooses for me. It is submission to his will. It is, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Not, Lord, what will you do for me? This is the path that God has called us to, submission. And not just submission, but he says resistance. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil and his fiery darts. Resist the devil or be a friend with the world. Know this, that if your desire is to be living in the flesh you will, continually, you will continually pursue friendship with the world, but never obtain it. The phrase, the terminology used in this verse imply that this is something that you never attain to. You never succeed at it. You just always pursue it. It's like alcohol or drugs. They never satisfy. What you do is you have one more and one more and one more. Why? Because it's not meant to satisfy. It's fleshly. But here's what he says about this. Resist the devil and you will succeed. You will make it. You will attain to it. Being a friend of the world is self-defeating or pursuing that. Being a friend of the Lord is what brings about success. He not only says that, I'll make one more comment. Those who pursue the friendship with the world, the Bible says, make themselves the enemy of God. Those who pursue friendship with the world make themselves the enemy of God. And let me just make this comment. This word in the Greek literally means to be hated by God. If you look this word up in a Greek lexicon, the first word that you will see is hatred. He that pursues friendship with the world makes himself... It's a personal decision. He makes himself hated by God. Psalm 5 says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, and you hate all evildoers. This is no small thing. This is no insignificant thing. When we pursue friendship with the world, when we start down this path of flesh, we make ourselves the enemy of God. Let's keep going. Second comparison. 
Verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it upon your own passions. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The second comparison is simply the pursuit of closeness to God versus the pursuit of sinful desires. The pursuit of closeness to God versus the pursuit of sinful desires. He says to draw near to God. This is the word just means to approach God. It means to get close to him in a, in a relational, intimate way. It's to, it's to pursue closeness to God. And this is not some spiritual uh, inactive thing that we do. There are actual steps that we can do to get close to God, like reading his word and and praying and meditating on him. That's how we get close to God. Pursue a walk, a closeness, a passionate intimacy with God. And how do we do that? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, which means to empty your hands. Get, Get what you have in your hands out of it you will see that the main comparison between the flesh and the spirit is the flesh always wants and the spirit always lets go. The flesh always holds on to everything and the spirit says, I am going to give it all to God. Empty your hands. Come to God not with gripped hands but with open hands. Come to God with whatever you desire of me, I will do. Not I will do what I want to do, God, and please bless it. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and and purify your hearts, you double-minded, which means to have a single focus. Don't be focused on, on, don't be trying to hold on to the world and, and the, or the flesh and the spirit. You cannot. Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, which means blessed are those who are single in spirit. Blessed are those who are focused in spirit, for they shall see God. The other side of it is, is this. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly that you might spend it on your own lust. This word literally means to be wasteful. Spending or wasting what God has given you on your own sinful passions. Living a life that takes everything that God has given us and simply using it to satisfy our fleshly desires. Isn't that a horrible thought? to take all of the gifts and all of the blessings and all of the things that God has bestowed upon us and simply to try to use them to satisfy this old sinful flesh. God help us. Again, we go back to the same thought. Those who, those who um, ask, those who ask, they do not what? They do not what? They do not receive. Draw near to God and he will draw near. So on one end, it's failure again. I ask, but I don't get. On the other end, it's absolute success. I draw near to God, he draws near to me. The way of the flesh, my friend, is an ultimate and utter failure. And the way of the spirit is always, always a success. It's always a success. Don't waste your life on sinful desires. 
Don't waste your life on sinful desires. Don't waste God's gifts in your life. Don't waste the blood of Jesus Christ on your flesh. Let it lead you into greater service for the king. We'll go on. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. This is like the utter, this is like the ultimate desires, right? The ultimate passions. You desire to have, but you do not, but you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you, contain, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is somebody that's striving and wants everything. They want everything, but they won't ask for it. They want it, but they won't ask for it. And then at the end of this verse is a person that is totally broken by themselves, broken by their sinfulness, broken by their unworthiness, broken and crumbled in the presence of God. This is the path of the spirit. This is the path of righteousness. And this is the path of the flesh. The third, I believe it is, the spirit of the, the attitude of brokenness and repentance versus the attitude of power, control, and ability. Here's what he says. He says simply this. You desire, you do not have, you will not ask, you will not surrender it to God, you will not give it to God, and you will go to whatever means that you possibly can to get it. That's the flesh. I'm not releasing this to God so that if he wants it for me, he can give it to me. I know that he's gonna say no to me, so what I will do is I will do anything that I possibly can to get it, even to the point of murdering somebody. You say, well, Pastor John, I would never murder somebody. Let me ask you something this morning. How many of you hate somebody right now because you didn't get what you wanted and they stood in the way of it? Matthew 5 says that murder and hatred are the same thing. Most people believe that this passage of Scripture, this book of James as an entirety, is a direct connection to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The flesh wants things so Badly, They will not submit them to God. They will not surrender their desires to God. They will not come to God for it, but they will do whatever that they can in their power to control it. Which path are we on today? Brokenness and repentance, it's simple. I, I, I thought this, this, this verse nine was just like, oh my goodness, why, does he, why is this even in here? What, he, what he's saying is, is, on one end, somebody willing to, willing to do whatever it takes to get something. On the other end, somebody so broken before God that they don't have any desires. They have given it to God. They have released and relinquished everything. I find it interesting. James 1 verse 2 says, count it all joy when you fall into various temptations or trials, right? You guys know the verse. So that patience may have its perfect work and you will be complete Wanting nothing. The ultimate maturity of a Christian is when we want nothing. Totally content, totally satisfied, walking through life in satisfaction and contentment. Lacking in nothing. The spirit 
the attitude of brokenness and repentance versus the attitude of power, control, and ability. And then lastly, the spirit, the last one is verse 1 and verse 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In verse number 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The last comparison is simply this, the spirit of humility versus the spirit of greed and discontentment. Humility means to be brought low, to be humiliated, to be abased. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was exalted above comprehension. It leads to exaltation. He says at the end of the verse that humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. In other words, make yourself low and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. On the other hand, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This literally means this. I put this last thought down as greed and discontentment. Listen to me. Your flesh has so many desires and is so dissatisfied that you do not know what to do. That's what verse one is about. Your flesh has so many, you are full of desires. You are full of wants. You want things to be different. You want things to be better. You want to have more. You want to have this. You want to have that. Your body is so full of desires that it's a war within you that you do not know what to do. This is where confusion comes from. This is why James 1 says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. The humbling leads to exaltation. The war and the conflict. The war, the desires, leads to internal conflict. Doubt, frustration, criticism, it leads to all of these things because we have a war within us and we're not happy. We're not satisfied. We're not content. We want it different. And therefore, we have this war going on within us. And here's what the Bible says. Here's this, if you want to look at it this way, the, the, the front side of these four verses is the problem. The back side is the solution. What's the solution? Humble yourself. It means become nothing. It means to not think of yourself. And then you will have the solution to your problem. That's the comparison. Lastly, this morning is the conclusion. Few few thoughts on the conclusion. I won't won't be long. Number one, you cannot serve the flesh and the spirit, but you must serve one. One. You cannot serve the flesh or the, and the spirit, but you must serve one. Matthew 6.24 says you cannot serve two masters. Romans 6.16 says you will either serve the flesh leading to death or you will serve the spirit leading to righteousness and life. You must choose this morning. You're at the top of the hill. There are two paths. There is not a third path. You're looking down. You're comparing Which direction do I go? Do I go the way of repentance and humility and submission? Does that sound pleasant to you guys? Or do I go away of passion, interest, flesh? That sounds more interesting to me. This is the right way. This is the wrong way. Remember this. You cannot serve both, but you will serve one. Number two, nothing fleshly Nothing on the front side of this hill ever satisfies. 
Just read the four verses that we already read this morning. Nothing on the front side of this hill ever satisfies. You will always want more. You will always want different because you are walking in your flesh. Notice this. Everything that's spiritual satisfies. The backside of this hill is a, is a hill of gratification. It is satisfaction. The front side of this hill is a hill of discontentment. It's a hill of never attaining what you're pursuing. You will never be satisfied with what the devil offers you. You will never be satisfied with what the world offers you. But my friend, listen to me this morning. Jesus Christ satisfies. He tells us in John chapter number six, if you eat of his bread and drink of his wine, you will never hunger and you will never thirst again. Can we get an amen on Jesus is satisfying? He is satisfying. Everything spiritual always satisfies. Nothing fleshly ever satisfies. The last thought this morning in closing, what you choose will impact your future. Your decision is setting a direction. Your decision is setting a path. And if any of you have ever skied on a really difficult ski slope, you don't turn back. You don't turn back. You're on it. And you better figure out a way to get to the bottom because you're on the path. The decisions that you make today will impact the direction that you're in tomorrow. Listen to what the Bible says, Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the flesh you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then Galatians 6, 8, and 9 says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will of his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will of his Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What path are we on this morning? Maybe, maybe you're grace this morning. Maybe you're sitting in this congregation and you're still on the top of the hill. I think maybe even God is so gracious that he, that he lets us start on the top of that hill every morning, right? Isn't that the grace of our God? He lets us look down through the past of that day and says, here's, here's your choices. Make a decision and, and, make, and make the right decision. My challenge to you this morning is that there are going to be decisions that you're going to make today and you're either going to make them built around what your flesh wants or what God wants. You're going to make decisions based upon what feels right, based upon what's going to make you acceptable and liked in the eyes of the world, or you're going to make decisions upon what does God's word say. What is the right thing to do? There is a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do. Do you know why we live in the middle where we think to ourselves, well, I just don't know why this is, but I'm just going to make this decision? It's because we're not stable in our focus. It's not that there's not a right and a wrong. It's that we're trying to walk in the middle. What we need to do is make a decision. What path am I on? Am I going to live according to the spirit? Am I going to live according to the flesh? And then we need to make bold decisions. They might be fleshly bold decisions, and you will reap a fleshly consequence. But listen, guys, listen, let's, let's live, live boldly. Live boldly one way or the other. Live boldly for the Lord. Like Matthew 7 says, the, the broad way is easy, 
It's pleasant, it's fun, it's perhaps exhilarating, but it leads to destruction. It leads to death. But the narrow way, it's difficult to get on. It's difficult to desire humility. It's difficult to desire secondariness. It's difficult to desire nothingness. But in the end, it is that that the Lord blesses. I'm reminded in Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea, he says to them, you say to yourselves that you are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but you refuse to recognize that you are naked. You are in despair. You are lacking. I paraphrased that. It's we're nothing. And God is everything. May we set our hearts and focus on what is right. What is right, not what feels right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us. We pray that you will help us as a people to resist the temptations that the devil throws at us and to embrace the truth, to embrace what's right, to cling to what is good, to follow your word and what it instructs us to do, and to be confident in it, Lord, not to flounder in life. I pray your blessing upon our time together this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.